This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for October 13th, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm joined by Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Today, we're also joined by Katie Wu, a science reporter who's been covering the COVID-19 epidemic pretty much from the start. Katie is unusually qualified. She has a PhD in microbiology and immunology, and she had been writing general science stories for Smithsonian and NOVA. She joined the New York Times at about the start of the epidemic, and she's since moved to the Atlantic. Her work's been widely read, and last week she was awarded a Science and Society Journalism Award from the National Association of Science Writers. One of the challenges of the COVID-19 outbreak is how to communicate changing and uncertain information in a timely fashion. There's a lot to unpack in this. First, what we know has changed rapidly, sometimes from week to week and sometimes in very dramatic ways. Second, it's clear that we still don't have certainty about many of the important questions about the disease, its management, and its prevention. And finally, despite uncertainty, it's been critical to get information out quickly because so much of it has implications for what steps we should be taking next. This presents different issues for medical and scientific journals as opposed to the lay press. So let's start with you, Eric. What do you see as the role of a medical journal during the outbreak, and how has the New England Journal of Medicine dealt with the challenges? Steve, I think that there are some things that we're good at and some things that we're not so good at. Change and uncertainty are inherent in medicine. We are always publishing things which change a paradigm either significantly or just by a little bit, and all of our studies contain some uncertainty, and we're very clear about expressing the degree of uncertainty. But this is for an audience that can understand what underlies that uncertainty and the statistical methods we use to try to quantitate how uncertain results are. So I think these sorts of tools have been very useful during the COVID-19 outbreak. What we're not as good at is the timescales, is that things happen so quickly and we're dedicated to getting things right. So that means we want to maintain the same sort of rigor that we have when we publish anything else with these sort of breaking news stories. So how can we do that? I think it has been a challenge. We have the same size staff we always had, so we're using the same people, and we still feel an obligation to publish in a lot of areas that aren't COVID-19. So essentially, we've asked a lot of people to work a lot harder, and that includes both our staff and our authors and reviewers. Our authors have to turn things around very quickly, and we've been asking reviewers to review on very short timelines. We're incredibly grateful for all the help we've gotten from outside, and I'm incredibly grateful for all the work inside. Still, we're never going to be a breaking news source. It takes us a while to make sure that we get the story right. And because of that, I think lay press has perhaps an even bigger part to play in an outbreak like this one. So I think, Eric, it's, as you point out, a very challenging area. And I'd like to take a step back. There is the content, the medium, and the process as I think about it. At what point do we determine that there is a problem that requires urgent attention and very rapid response? And we've been dealing with this for decades. COVID-19 has been a utter global disaster 
But it's not a new issue of a pandemic causing a threat, as we've witnessed over millennia, you know, in our parents' lifetimes with polio. This is not a new process. What is different, I think, is communication, the medium. We now communicate almost instantaneously versus 20, 30 years ago with more traditional print communication. Now there's electronic communication. So if something is of note, we know about it within minutes. And I think that changes how information is filtered, packaged, and shared, and amplified both in good and bad ways. And then there's the process, which I think you alluded to a bit, Eric, as well, which is how do you bring rigor in this medium? And we as a medical journal have layers of process to get it right and to try to get it right quickly, realizing it's very difficult to get it right when nobody knows the facts because it's a new pathogen that has yet to be defined. And so many investigators, clinicians, care providers, public health officials are trying to understand it simultaneously in different environments and under different conditions. And I think all of these considerations come together in the last year and a half with SARS-CoV-2 and how we as a medical journal have responded. But I think as the global community of information management has tried to respond, and to be as thoughtful as possible in that we're sharing information quickly, but trying to minimize the misinformation that leads to more confusion and harm. You bring up an interesting point, Lindsay, about the medium. We were once strictly a print journal, and print means that there were many limitations on how rapidly we could do anything. And that, in fact, gave us some license because we couldn't publish very quickly, and therefore we could always take our time. Now in the days when many people, probably the majority of people, read our journal online, we can, in theory, publish very, very quickly. So therefore, there's additional pressure on us to get things out fast and yet still make sure that they're correct. I mean, Eric, that's a good thing. It's a very challenging process because we and I'm sure all others who publish don't want to get it wrong. Yet to be actionable to help improve the health of the public and the public health, we need to move quickly to share information that people can act on and how to do that in a way that is appropriate given the state of knowledge on that given day. And I say it that way because I think many of us feel with COVID that every day, are thinking about it changes because of information that emerges from a different sector that affects our thinking of this pathogen and the pandemic. Katie, I'd like to get your take on all of this, but I want to separate the issues out a bit. Let's start with two related challenges, change and uncertainty. How do you communicate to your readers that what you're saying now might be wrong next week? And how do you give them an idea of the degree of uncertainty in medical and scientific findings? Yeah, Steve, it's a great question. And I think it's a question that every journalist has to wrestle with on a pretty regular basis, especially in a field such as science, where it is such an iterative process. And I think about this a lot. There are some things that I do that are explicit and some that are implicit. 
And so kind of in the explicit arena, I'm actually very comfortable saying whenever I'm reporting, you know, scientists don't know this definitively or experts are still figuring out that aspect of this finding. I even appreciate it when my sources tell me we don't know this or data is still being collected. And that is just a very helpful thing to incorporate into coverage to signal directly to readers. Oh, we don't have the complete set of information here. We may never have the complete set of information here, depending on how you define complete. Um, I actually really like it when sources signal to me and to readers I don't know everything about this topic because one, it gives people a sense that I'm talking to people that are human, just like my readers, and that there is no single player or character in science that has all the answers. In addition to that, I think just whenever I can, even when I'm not being explicit about a data set being sort of incomplete, I can signal that subtly. The idea that science is iterative is sort of shaped by phrases like so far or to date or ongoing, or even saying something like this finding applies in this specific population under these certain circumstances. Some of that can sound a little bit dry, but sort of peppered in throughout coverage. It's a very, I think, subtle roadmap for people to follow to get a sense of, well, this is what we know so far. And maybe this isn't definitive. Maybe this is more nuanced than what was even portrayed in the headline. But this is kind of the state of information we're at right now. And I think just signaling to people in these subtle ways, my goal is to get people comfortable with a lack of definitive statements as quickly as I can. Um, one last thing I'll mention is, you know, when I do have the space and time to sort of weave a narrative about how science is done, I will take it. Science is obviously repetitive. There's no instruction manual. We're all trying to answer questions that have not been answered before. And that involves guesswork and mistakes. And so when I do have time and space, I try to include narratives about how people generated hypotheses and then tried to prove or disprove them. If they sought out collaborations with other people, if they struck up new friendships, even made some enemies along the way, if they disproved their own hypotheses and had to start from scratch. I think displaying that process over and over gives people a sense that science is not this magical series of eureka moments done by lone wolves working in labs with crazy hair. So Katie, I struggle with this issue a lot that you suggest, which is as an observation emerges that challenges how we think about something and let's focus on COVID and it goes against the current grain. At what point do we as a community say that that's a substantial enough observation? Because there is such a sense of urgency that the moment we see a hint, we should all be talking about it, even if the data are not yet all in or strong enough, but are suggestive. How do we balance the prematureness of the data with the completeness of the data in telling the different stories around the evolution of our thinking in COVID? Yeah, that's a great question, Lindsay. And I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all answer to that. I think this is something that I am always trying to do, and I am very lucky that I do not have to do this as a solo sport. I have support from my colleagues and my editors, but as a journalist, I'm also never the final arbiter of what expertise it is I am dealing in that day. I am always calling my sources. I'm trying to get a sense of how incongruous is this finding? Like, are the data robust enough that this should actually prompt a shift in our thinking? Or is this an incredibly small study with limitations? And, you know, there are outliers, there are exceptions. I think 
I never try to limit my thinking to what a single study shows, which is generally helpful, but try to incorporate it into what my knowledge base already is. You know, is there a way to explain this difference? Is there a way to incorporate it into what I already understand? Is this even worth acknowledging or does it need correction or amendment because it hasn't yet been through peer review? This is the question that I think a lot of us are constantly asking in the era of endless floods of preprints, all of which seem to contradict each other. And then when they're finally published, they actually do often end up telling a more similar narrative than they might have at first seemed. So Katie, I agree. Since we're sort of in the same arena, reporting new information, assessing its credibility, one of the big challenges is when something is first. Because when something is first, and then it doesn't fit into the bigger narrative as easily. And we don't want to jump to that conclusion of something in isolation, but we don't want to ignore it if it's correct and may change how we think about it. And I know it's not an easily answerable or even an answerable question, but I think it's something we all struggle with as truly new observations emerge versus incremental observations that help fill in our understanding. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I think maybe to add one more dimension to that is when something is first, I think one of the first things that I asked myself is, is this first and expected or is it first and unexpected? And obviously it's not a perfect binary, but if that, I guess, additional axis has its own spectrum, there are things that are you know, very expected. Like when we observed very rare cases of anaphylaxis after Pfizer's vaccine first rolled out about a year ago, there were a lot of people thinking, well, Moderna's vaccine is quite similar in formulation. Can we expect some fairly similar reactions? And indeed, that did seem to be the case, both in terms of prevalence and presentation. You know, this is complicated. And so when those cases first emerge, it was not like a five alarm fire, like, oh my God, no one saw this coming. But it also gave us time to sort of temper people's expectations and give people a sense of how big is the scope of this problem. I think that also really informs how journalists can frame when something is first. If something is first and expected, that needs to be made very clear up top. Reporters are in a unique position to not only report the finding, but add context to it, place it in pre-existing context and add nuance to it and sort of say, well, we did see this coming. This might sound concerning, but let's actually frame this in a way that adds a denominator to this. So it actually is quite rare. Let's give people a sense of the scope or severity of this. So even though this new word might sound a little foreign or scary, let's actually break it down and give people a sense of like, okay, this side effect may have happened, but it's limited. It is not often landing people in the hospital that sort of thing. And so I think adding that dimension of where this is coming from, that's really helpful. And when something is first and truly unexpected, why is that? Could it be wrong? Could it truly be an outlier? And that's always worth acknowledging as well. Katie, among reporters, you have an unusual background in that you have a science background. I wonder for most reporters, as you said, as you do yourself, you go to scientists and hear what they have to say about something. But I wonder how much your independent evaluation of data plays into the stories that you eventually write, as opposed to polling experts. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it is very story dependent. Honestly, at a maximum, I am still playing a very small role in you know being the final arbiter here. I depend heavily on the experts that I talk to to gut check me and give me a sense of what's going on. 
But if I've reported on something extensively in the past, or if I am lucky enough to have, you know, scientific background in the subject, I at least give myself the liberty to say, this looks promising. It passes kind of the first hurdle and I will send it to someone else to gut check me. There are definitely cases in which I see a finding and I will rule it out for coverage because it does not look significant enough because the data looks shoddy, because the methods don't look very good. Even sometimes who has put this together and on what time scale and what format it's coming in, a preprint or even just some posting on Twitter will influence my decision-making in that respect. But I very rarely label something as completely groundbreaking just based on my own decision-making, because I think I, as a journalist, am sometimes acting as a filter. I should not be the person whose voice is most prominent on the page. Katie, you talked about what you do when you have the time and the space, but of course, deadlines are an enormous issue in many media outlets. In your experience, how has the time pressure of producing stories affected how they're reported? Yeah, this is another great question. And I think all of you addressed several of the things that I am juggling in my brain at any given moment. Uh, you know, when a story is reported too quickly, it might be first, but it could also be wrong. It could lack nuance. It could exclude important voices who could add dimensions to my coverage. I think I am at this point in time, very lucky to work for an outlet where our main mission isn't really to break the news and be first, but I like to think about it as breaking down the news. This is very different when I was at the New York Times, for instance, but at the Atlantic, we're very rarely the first to report a story, but my goal is always to hear news, uh, still be timely about it, but to help people sort of incorporate this into their thinking, try and anticipate what questions readers might be asking, you know, why is this happening? Why might this be surprising? And maybe most importantly, how to help them frame what's up ahead and give them a useful framework to internalize what they've just heard. But that does still require being nimble. Ideally, I'm still reporting something within a couple of days, maybe even a few hours of news breaking, depending on what the subject at hand really is. So I trained myself to read quickly. I feel like I'm always writing a review article in the background because I have like hundreds of tabs open and documents where I have sorted relevant papers and preprints into categories saying, you know, these have found this, these have found that, here are the differences between these populations. And I've also learned to be really nimble with contacting people. I have a lot of sources that I will text or even sometimes cold call when I'm in a pinch. Sometimes it's for an interview, something formal where I will quote someone, but sometimes it's just on background where I will ask someone to gut check me and say, hey, did you see this news broke? How significant is this? Does this actually warrant important coverage? And I also recognize that not every article I write can cover every single finding that has preceded it. So sometimes it's a matter of just getting a sense of, well, my readers probably already have a good sense of how process X works. Let's spend this article focusing on Y and just link heavily to things that explain X for the few people who might not have heard about it before. But it is really difficult. And certainly journalists do get things wrong. I think the most important thing here is to take responsibility for that and move forward with as much transparency as possible. Communicating in a medical journal is in many ways simpler as we've chosen our audience, physicians, researchers, other healthcare providers, and we write for them. Other people may read what we publish, but they're not the ones we have in mind when we're writing and editing. Katie, do you have a sense of who your readers are and how best to communicate with that specific audience? And also, how could journals like ours, medical journals, make your life easier in that regard? 
Yeah, this is a really interesting question because I always have in mind who I believe my current readers are and who I would like my future readers to be. In terms of who The Atlantic's current readers are, I think The Atlantic still is an outlet that tends to reach a specific subset of people. Our readers tend to be fairly well-educated, fairly well-off socioeconomically. A lot of them are white. A lot of them wield a lot of privilege. And, you know, a lot of them, I think, do overlap with your audience, people who are scientifically savvy, people who are interested in an in-depth discussion of the science at hand, what it is about the science coverage. And in that sense, you know, I think we do experience some of the same limitations in who we are actually reaching. Because some of the people that I most want to be reading my pieces are not the people who are clicking on them and getting all the way to the end. I think this is an enormous problem in this era of digital media that we were talking about before. You know, people tend to get their news from the same sources over and over and over, and they reinforce themselves, whether it's, you know, Fox News or CNN or Breitbart or the Washington Post. We are all kind of, I think, trained to experience this branded form of media, which means trusting certain brands and distrusting others. And so in that sense, having the Atlantic's name on my pieces is a real boon in some situations, but it's also a barrier for others to read what I'm writing. I'm constantly thinking about how to bridge those gaps. And I don't think it's as simple as like writing a specific sentence or including a specific source, but those things do add up immensely over time. If I do include diverse voices in my work, if I do try and include diverse perspectives or anticipate questions that might be more common in specific communities, that's a way to sort of, I think, chip away at those walls. But it's also interesting because I know that some of the people who read my pieces are then taking that information and trying to have one-on-one conversations with some of the other people I'm trying to reach. And that's significant to me, even if it's not happening on a scale of like thousands of people at a time. I also do want to address your question about how journals and other forms of communication can sort of address this. And I think, you know, having this podcast is actually a significant step in that direction. You know, I'm seeing everything from journals to media outlets start to do podcasts, uh, things in video format, TV spots, uh, giving interviews to journalists and making sure that communication is happening through a variety of media. And that is huge. You know, I myself try to do podcasts or TV spots whenever I can or go on the radio when I'm invited because I never know who might be listening. And if somebody happens to be and they happen to hear the right thing at the right time, that can make a huge difference. It also can sort of skirt some of the issues that occur when paywalls are around, which I know (laughs) the journal has and also occurs at the Atlantic, but that can, I think, really significantly limit who is able to access important content like this. I like your formulation of your reader talking to someone else, because I do think that the influence that anyone writing can have extends hopefully beyond the direct reader to the communities that they interact with. And I think that for a medical journal, that's particularly true in that a small number of people read and fully digest what we write. You talked about people reading to the end of an article. Even our regular readers rarely will read to the end of an article It has to be something that they're particularly interested in for them to get to all the details. And yet, the people who do read to the end of the articles are the people who are making policies that are going to affect everybody else. And they're the conversation starters on the clinical wards, for example. They're the ones who are catalyzing conversations for people who've never seen it before. I think the same is certainly true in the lay press, where 
you can influence the conversation beyond the direct reader. Yeah, that's a really important point, Eric. And I think something I've been thinking about quite a bit lately is when I think about a publication like the journal, I would think that there is significant overlap in the people who are producing content for the journal and the people who are ingesting the content produced by the journal in terms of expertise, in terms of, you know, day job, anything like that. For me, I feel like I do my job best when there is actually not that much overlap in the people I am interviewing for an article and the people who are reading it, because my goal is to disseminate information to new audiences. And that gets really complicated. Sometimes I'm trying to change people's minds. Sometimes I am trying to, I think, reach audiences who would have otherwise zero access to that information. And that requires an immense amount of trust. You know, I have to be a translator, a guide, as well as a skeptic. And I think that puts immense pressure on me and my colleagues to get things right, offer the right perspectives, and just make people feel like we are not talking down to them. So it is incredibly helpful to have resources like scientific journals, medical journals to provide that information to us, but it can't be sort of parceled out word for word. We have to do quite a bit of translating in a way that's not condescending and still an acknowledgement of how bright and curious our readers are. And I think, Katie, what's implicit in that, and I think in the last year has been a real challenge, is how do we as a community communicate facts and then we can debate their interpretation. And the instability of facts, I think has clouded a lot of the conversation. And even if we accept what the facts are, there still may be, and there is a lot of room for debate as to what they mean and how to apply them. But the undermining of what we agree on as evidence that we should act on I think has been a real challenge in the last year, given the medium of communication and the democratization of communication. So everybody and anybody can comment. And that is good, but it can be destabilizing in certain ways. How do we manage that as a community? Yeah, I think this is one of the big ongoing challenges in my work and certainly most of my colleagues' work. I think recognizing that even in peacetime, people love news that is binary, definitive, will still be true next week or next year or next decade. They like snappy sound bits. They like things that don't need caveats. And they like things that are exciting and make them feel safe and secure. And I just have to remember this one thing today, and I'm set for quite some time. During times of crisis, I think those needs get exacerbated because there is so much else that is unstable. But it's incredibly difficult when we are working in a time of great uncertainty, and that has to be communicated. I think readers are incredibly frustrated right now at what they feel is whiplash, you know, oh, the government is changing up the rules on us, and, you know, nobody understands anything about the pandemic, and yet they're asking us to do X, Y, and Z and change our lives and make sacrifices. That's an incredibly difficult ask of people. But I think rather than trying to shield people from the uncertainty, there is some importance to asking people to lean into it and accept it and trust that readers are capable of handling nuance, are capable of handling change. And I think that one of the worst things that can happen right now is to think that people can't internalize new information as it comes along and think that things have to be oversimplified. I think when things are oversimplified and when they're portrayed to unreasonable extremes is where we really get ourselves into trouble. 
Katie, as Eric said, you have scientific training that puts you in a unique position to cover the epidemic. But what's been unusual is the urgency of coverage. Most science reporting is features, but the COVID beat has the same kinds of deadlines that many of your colleagues who have a general assignment background are living with, working with. So what have you learned about how to write breaking news? Yeah, I think in thinking about this question, it actually makes me think about some of the practices I had to unlearn when I was going from practicing science to writing about it. And, you know, certainly one of the major differences between my former day job as a scientist and my current job as a journalist is the amount of speed and pressure that is compacted into a single span of time. As we discussed earlier, when I'm writing an article, there is simply not the time to agonize or pour over every methodological nuance. I kind of just have to write sometimes and go. And, you know, when I think about what a scientific paper looks like, it's an immense amount of data. There is room to sort of go through every caveat, every limitation, include 40 supplementary figures. There is no room for that in journalism. I think Oftentimes, my readers are being asked to internalize new information when they are scrolling across a two-inch screen with their thumbs. It's just not super conducive to including every single caveat that I would like them to understand about a finding. And really, I think I'm lucky if I can get them to follow one thread of thinking for a few minutes. I'm lucky if they remember multiple things from my article the next day, You know, where papers are allowed to be, I think, dense and really packed and really complex. Articles have to be quickly digestible. And so when I'm thinking about how to structure an article, I am trying to keep a single primary path in mind from start to finish. Can I ask my reader to follow one thread? It's okay if there are little branches along the way, little deviations, little paths, but if those paths start to sprout their own branches, my reader is pretty much inevitably going to get lost. So that means I have to focus on scope. And sometimes that means when I'm reporting something, the best move for me to do is actually work backwards. If I want my reader to understand point one, point two, and point three by the end of the article, what's the base amount of information that they need to know to understand those points by the end? And can I sort of trim away the extraneous information that might bog them down along the way? A lot of this does lose caveats and nuance, but another rule I have is I should not necessarily have to introduce a problem to the reader and then immediately undo it. If I'm going to spend the space introducing a caveat, it better be something that lasts until the end of the piece. And I think like another thing that makes breaking news more palatable to people is when they find it relatable. And that can be personally, if I'm introducing stakes that feel relevant to them, like this is going to directly impact my health or the health of people around me, or this is something that I feel like I can understand on a visceral level. I can look outside my window and see something that this applies to. I can look in my kitchen and see something that works in much the same way. And you know, ideally, readers are also seeing something that they can internalize because they see someone in the article that reflects who they are, uh, whether it's someone doing the science or someone being impacted by the science. So I'm trying to include named sources, people who represent diverse backgrounds whenever I can. We suspect that the listeners to our podcasts are similar to the readers of the journal, largely physicians, researchers, other healthcare providers, sometimes the educated lay public. What message do you have for them about the value of the lay press in helping to understand the epidemic? Yeah, this is interesting. And I imagine a lot of my colleagues will have answers that slightly differ from mine. 
But the reason I went into journalism was because I was interested in exploring many different fields at once and having this opportunity to bring science to new audiences who might not have an opportunity to access it otherwise. I think what's essential for me is that no part of what I'm doing is ever dumbing anything down. I think it's making people feel connected to scientific findings because science does not happen in a vacuum. It's done by people. It's done for people. And if people don't feel connected to that, then there's really no point. I've always thought that there's no point in doing scientific research if it's not properly shared. And I actually wish that that were a more dedicated part of scientific training. I think another aspect of journalism that's really essential here is certainly a large part of what I do on a day-to-day basis is communicate scientific findings in a way that is relatable, understandable, but that is not always a one-dimensional thing. Science is not always good. I cannot be a unilateral champion of science, you know, in much the same way that politics is complicated by different motivations so too can science. So my reporting does not always cast science or the people who do it in the best light, but hopefully I'm always reporting those stories with a purpose. People need to know what is happening around them. They need to make well-informed choices. And so that means that sometimes when they read about science, they will associate that with how successful a vaccine is or an important medical advance that might save a loved one. But they also need to know about retractions of big papers. They need to know about data fraud. They need to know when companies might have a vested financial interest in advancing a product that is not as good as they're making it out to be. I think that's also part of showcasing how science does work and how sometimes it should not work and should be held accountable. So another way of saying that, I think, Katie, is that you have the opportunity to present the whole complexity of science rather than just the facts approach. Rather than saying, here is what was reported in a scientific journal yesterday, I think it is kind of essential for you to give the context. Why was this done? What does it mean? How can you interpret the results in a way that goes beyond the numbers? And I think that is in part the added value that you bring to a subject that can't always be followed in a medical or scientific journal. Yeah, I certainly like to think that's true. And that can take so many forms. I mean, sometimes when I am reporting the data out of a paper, it's about making the experience fun for the reader. You know, sometimes I will be asking researchers questions about, you know, whether or not jellyfish have butts or what the origin of the anus was. (laughs) Um, And uh, sometimes it is about just adding nuance and complexity or finding someone who took the drug in question or received the treatment in question and giving the reader a sense of here's what it is actually like to experience this disease state, to experience this treatment, to be injected with this vaccine and they were fine or they did better because of it. Uh, I think numbers can often seem incredibly cold. Numbers themselves are rarely memorable, but when they're couched in something that is emotionally evocative or something that feels relevant to people, that's when people walk away with a sense of this applies to me. This is something that I will devote some brain space to for an extended period of time. Thank you, Katie, for joining us today. And as always, thank you, Eric. Thank you, Lindsay.